Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark, as usual, and... How's your day been, Mark? <laughs> it's been good, Brendan. I've, I've, um, I was uh, just coming. I was telling you before we started about my visit to the dentist, and uh, and I've, I've had. It's been a good day. Normally, I would be um, having a whinge about visiting the dentist with what with uh, needles and fillings and everything, uh, but um, but everything went really well today. So it was a good visit to. The, I did have a filling replaced. Yes. Um, and uh, and so I did have some. Uh, lignocaine, but fortunately that's worn off, and I'm I'm only slurring the usual amount, and not additionally due to some regional Alcohol. local anaesthesia. Yeah, it's just the the general slurring, not uh, dental yes. associated slurring. So the composite, the composite, um, yeah, yeah fill they, in these days they, which, they, with, they, the, with the UV light, etc. Yeah. They pulled out a little bit of a because the. The, a previous filling, a previous amalgam filling, had gone a little bit uh, rotten, um, and uh, and so they pulled that out and, and replaced it with the composite. Um, so yeah, uh, all all they do it very efficiently too, like all within about thirty five minutes. And uh, yeah, go take my hat off to them. Um, I, I, the only other bad thing is, you know, you've got typical dentist, you've got a mouthful of. Uh, appliances and obviously I want to talk to them about the differences between human mouths and uh, and particularly rabbit mouths um, but um, it just comes out well dribble <laughs> dribble like most of the things <laughs> I say dribble or dribble or dribble <laughs> dribble <laughs> across across of both yes I think I sent you that um, one of the Larson cartoons of of the uh, the dentist that was hilarious. It's a, they're all classics, but that one even more so a classic. And it was, I think, the it was a picture of a patient in the chair and the dentist uh, with a tennis ball in his hand, um, approaching the mouth, um, and he already had the mouth <laughs> open with all the all the gear in there, and the 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 punchline or the the, the um, caption was um, just for interest. We'll see if we can fit this inside as well. <laughs> um, and it just about and I showed it to Sophie, my daughter, who's studying dentistry, and she said, "Yeah, that's about right. That's about right." So, I was pretty yes. impressed though that because you know that your mouth drifts closed as the procedure goes on, and you do realise that. You've got them operating through only a quarter of the gap. Um, by the time they go, oh, can you just open your mouth up a little bit again? I'm amazed how much uh, with those loops we've talked about the uh, loops that dentists use. With those loops, they seem to get a pretty good view through a pretty tiny gap. Yes, yes, I think it's the standard, isn't it? As we were mentioning off air, the to where the loops these days, where um, I think going back not that long ago, probably two or three years, um, I reckon virtually hardly anybody um, as far as the local dentist here in, in Melbourne, Mark, would be wearing the loops, but they all wear them these days and they they, they really, I mean, with Sophie, they really push with the 
with the um, training, with with making sure that they're sitting ergonomically correct, and uh, they have points taken off um, with their with their practical oh, tests wow. if they're not not sat properly and they're slumping a little bit, um, which which is good because you know they'll be spending the actually the whole career you know sitting slumped over one of those little chairs and and looking into into mounds so. Yeah, so there you go. Um, as if we had any ergonomic training when we went through, Mark. <laughs> I think we had um, just uh, slap around the chops if we um, didn't behave. That's about all I, I, I had. I don't know about you. Yeah. I so, don't yeah. think um, body position and, well, I suppose maybe not in the same way, but, um, you know, with, with uh, large animals, so much of that is... Um, is body positioning, and even these days when tractor positioning, Mark, <laughs> with, with um, obstetrics. Uh, but I do find, um, and this is a locum thing, Brendan, that um, that body position, the, pl- the angle that you hold your hand at, the familiarity with the equipment, um, that does play a role in how efficient you are with um, with uh, doing those uh, procedures, dental procedures, surgical procedures. So I can understand why they they push. Uh, the you, Sophie and her cohort to adopt uh, an appropriate body position. Um, so yeah, and and of mm. course, uh, more than once I've done a you know moderately long surgery and then um, then had to have a few ibuprofen afterwards because of the severe back pain, um, leaning over at an inappropriate angle or whatever to to get an appropriate view of the surgery. So good that yep. uh, our how uh, young professionals uh, are being taught not to, you know, to adopt the correct body position. Good yep. on them. Yep. So what have you got for me, Mark? We've got one one news story this week that we're going to chat about. We've got we've got a few in the bank there, but I thought this week we'll just um, be extra punchy. Look, I think that this, this is um, – I've got to tell you that I was a bit surprised by this because um, – the start of this uh, article, um, which focuses on what hibernation uh, can teach us about human health, but um, the focus is fat bears, and I didn't realise that um, that that there's a, an actual um, in Alaska. There's a tradition, a glorious autumn tradition. The article alleges um, that people vote for the plumpest brown bear <laughs> in Alaska's Katmai National Park. And last year... Home we're than, not out there during that period, Mark. We'd be in big more, trouble. More than 800,000 people uh, had an opinion about which bear was the champion of Fat Bear Week. And, um, and Otis, an enormous dimpled ursine, um, is the three-time Fat Bear champion. Um, but... The article takes a, a much more uh, rigorous and scientific term uh, turn after uh, drawing us in with the clickbait of uh, voting for fat bears um, to discuss the uh, the biometabolic and biochemical changes that occur. Um, and uh, hibernation is such a, a very complicated and nuanced metabolic change um, and and I'm interested one of the things that really interested me about this article was that um, insulin seems to be very much at the center 
of um, how bears manage to not lose muscle mass and to lose some of that um, some of that adornment that allows them to win the fat bear competition um, during hibernation, um, and insulin sensitivity uh, between those various tissues, um, uh, you know, protects them against heart disease that might develop that uh, allows them to change that metabolic rate and to use uh, their fat reserves and, and at the same time not do significant damage or really any damage to uh, those muscle tissues that are going to be so useful when spring comes around. So it's um, it's really interesting. And the, the corollary of it, of course, is that the more that we understand the chemical mediators, the biochemical mediators that uh, switch the insulin resistance and sensitivity of various tissues, then hopefully that can feed into um, um, human medicine. And of course, um, there's no better way uh, to maintain a healthy body weight and lifestyle than through physical exercise. But um, for some people who, for a variety of reasons, might not be able to do that, managing their internal metabolism in light of what we understand about these bears might uh, might might improve their quality of life significantly, and um, and so that's a really interesting area of research. Are you hibernating, Brendan? Yeah, I was hibernating the, <laughs> the mute button while I was having a quick sip of water there, Mark. But yes, I agree totally. And do that, um, you know, they obviously have a cute fat bear picture there with the bear looking like it's waving, but obviously it's probably telling you to nick off. I'm stressed out. Um, yeah, so they sort of spoke in, well, it, it went into a lot more detail about um you know, bare muscles and uh, blood flow, etc., and um, then relating to that to, um, I think, what, what they were trying to do. Well, the ultimate aim of the research is to isolate and refine all of the substances and processes in hibernating bears' blood and elsewhere in their bodies that protect them from muscle waste, as you um, mentioned, with the hope that these same elements might treat atrophy from bed rest or ageing in people. So, yeah, interesting. Um, very interesting, but yeah, I was quite taken aback with you with the the um, fat bear week um, <laughs> in Alaska. So, uh, Wouldn't have thought that's uh, entirely politically correct, but geez, yes, eight hundred thousand yes. people can't be wrong. Yes, it's um, yeah, bit of a surprise, but bit of a surprise. Yes, so there we go. That's our one and only story this week, and we have to, this this topic, Mark. It's a um, Main topic today. It's a interesting one, I think, and it's one that you and I have spoken at length previously over over many um, drinks, uh, and that's about earwaxing ferrets and and the fact that as a as a as a common, I think, virtually all the ferrets I see, Mark, they have gungy ears, don't they? They have this um, dark brown, black waxy material in the ears. So I want to you to um, vocalise on some of the comments that we've um, discussed <laughs> and our theories behind this um, with, with ferrets. And I'd be very interested, especially with vets who and technicians who are seeing ferrets in other countries and where we are, whether they have the same experience in that um, most of the pet ferrets that they see have these 
very um, uh, um, a large amount of the, the the brownie sort of waxy substance in the ferrets that they're seen in practice. So send us an email, vetgurus at gmail.com if you do see the same as us, Mark. So do you want to jump into it and sort of? I did. I wanted uh, the first thing I wanted to say, Brendan, was that um, we both know that our ferrets can have ododectes problems. Um, they definitely can get ear mites, and it's one of the reasons we like using selamectin with them because uh, it can help to control that local problem. But the, the presence of this dark wax needs to always be investigated for ear mites, but it's not universally associated with ear mites. Uh, there are many ferrets who don't have ear mites um, who have this... Uh, crusty very dark wax that can build up in their ear and cause um cause quite a deal of worry is that's the way that uh, you see that your practice isn't it yeah so i suppose my you know and, and we've sort of spoken about this you know is it is this a new norm is this normal um although i think it's an abnormal process there i'd, I'd like to i like to see some of the wild ferret species or the mustelids related to um, closely related to ferrets, um, and and have a have a gander, Mark. Have a look down there, is <laughs> and see whether or not they have something similar there. Um, and I bet when you did that, you would find that they did not. That they had, uh, you know, a very thin smear of honey-coloured wax that didn't build up like the stuff that we see in the ferrets that we do see. And right, yeah. um, I reckon. That um, that you're Mark's right. Theory. Mark's theory. Mark's theory. It's not. It's not normal. I reckon the stuff that we would see, the light smear of honey-coloured stuff, would be normal, and these yep. big crusty bits are not normal. And I think that it probably has to do with a number of factors. My, my theory is that it's multifactorial. That there's going to be a genetic component, and um, I don't. The in humans, for example, there's a um, a genetic link between um, one of the what's the, the an atropine transferring binding protein, um, uh, which I don't, I don't know which a sounding chemical compound it is, but that uh, uh, protein influences the movement of lipids around the body more generally, but specifically in the ear, um, it. Uh, changes the characteristic of wax and so that's why people of uh, east asian uh, ethnicity frequently have dry flaky wax and people of more european um, heritage are likely to have uh, uh, moister more fluid wax it's a genetic thing and i suspect in ferrets we see the same thing that the relatively small founder stock of the domestic ferrets in different locations around the world may well have a genetic predisposition to a particular type of wax and then i think on top of that the altered metabolism that the ferrets in captivity do not go through wild ferrets have a significant period of their life going through um, almost a hibernation definitely going through a, a winter um, uh, uh, wind down um, that huge metabolic change that wild ferrets go through is often not experienced by captive ferrets and uh, as a consequence 
um, I suspect that changes the character of the lipids in their body and more specifically the ones that we see that form cerumen. Well, you're a true ear connoisseur, Mark, <laughs> by the sound of things. Do you? I'd be, I'm going to keep... I, I, next time I see you, I'd, I'd, um, I hope you're not surreptitiously, surreptitiously looking um, at my earwax, are you? Um, from, <laughs> When I'm when we're sat there at the bar having a having a drink or two, um, I think you've covered covered that fantastically. <laughs> so because I was <laughs> going to say, um, not quite as eloquently as you, um, that the things I'd be concerned about that are causing this. And yes, I agree in that I don't think it's normal. Um, and we'll talk about our um, our preferred um, dealings with these when we do encounter a ferret with this. Um, Excess earwax, which um, we commonly see, um, is environment, Mark, and 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 uh, the husbandry of these um, pet ferrets um, and genetics, which is exactly what you said. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, I suppose it would be interesting to see to con- compare and contrast whether there's any clients who are keeping ferrets in specific sort of humidities, or they're letting them, you know. To variations on slowing down and that whether whether that influences the build up of these these um the wax in the market and again compared with other regions of the world I'd I'd love to be able to um, get some information about for instance how ferrets are doing as a pet and what their ear wax situation is in in the tropics for instance um compared to really arid regions um where they're kept as a pet so i think that would help help solve the solve the issue or the conundrum for us mark yeah um so do you find one of the questions i've got for you brendan is do we see uh that like i think we both agree that it's not normal any animal that has that sort of really dark um, hard wax build up in shapes. And there's in a their lot end. in there, isn't yeah, there? In these yeah. ferrets, you know. I, um, we'll talk about the cleaning in a sec, but yeah. Um, sorry, you go ahead. Do, do you um, see um, pathologies arise as a consequence of the presence of that wax? Are there sometimes? Um, yes, and a lot, lot of the time, no. Um, and and I'm, I'm I'm actually quite surprised at the fact that. Um, Apparently, most of the ferrets that have this, they're not bothered by it. You know, they're not they're not shaking their head, they're not scratching around that their pinna, um, or, or causing you know ulcerations or that whatever. Um, I'm the one who's bothered by it, <laughs> not the ferret, uh, because every every single ferret that I've that I anaesthetise these days, um, part of that you know the process of what you do with most animals that you have anaesthetised, you clip the nails, you know, of, of of the animals and including the ferrets because they're often a bit wriggly to do a proper um, decent nail clip with them in a consult, um, especially with a wriggly ferret. So we're clipping the nails, and then we're we're you know at the nurses. Uh, a keyed into doing it, doing a flush and a clean of those ears because I know I'll have that excess ear wax in there, Mark. Um, so, what's your method of, of cleaning them, Mark? Well, if we obviously you've you've highlighted the um, the uh, if they're anaesthetised, um, that's the perfect opportunity to do it. Um, but when they're conscious, crikey, you would you you have stand really no chance yeah. of yeah. trying to do it. So, what we try and do is. Uh, uh, manage the 
um, pliability, the flexibility of the chunks of wax. So we assume that part of the reason that they've gotten crusty and dark and old is that they've been sitting there for a long time. Um, and a lot of the more volatile liquid uh, oils that constitute cerumen have uh, evaporated away or uh, moved away one way or another. Um, and so replacing those with a, 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 a drop of light oil um, to soften those uh, black waxy pieces of crud um, allows us to manipulate them a little bit easier and more quickly and get them out. So my usual technique um, is to ask the client to every second day um, put a single drop of one of the uh, um, either the uh, organic ear cleaners or uh, an oil uh, into the ear, um, let the ferret groom it and then have a look at it a couple of weeks down the track with a view to wiping the more pliable wax out. Excellent idea, Mark. Uh, I must admit with the ferrets that I'm not sedated or anaesthetised, I tend to just mention the fact that they probably got pretty crusty gungy ears and leave it at that so um, <laughs> you're, um, unless one, and, and suggest maybe we knock it out at some stage and you know do a bit of a workup and clean the ears and do general bloods and all that sort of stuff um, so yeah um, I need to start thinking about doing your gentle gentle approach to them and seeing if we so what what percentage of those do you reckon you, you managed to then the, the, the clients then managed to remove that um, remove that um, discharge well, I think what tends to happen, well, the, the total removal just doesn't occur, but the yep. stuff that's closer to the opening of the ear canal, um, we might remove, I don't know, 50% of that stuff um, and be able to see more clearly the deeper structures within the ear. Um, yeah, I don't think there's, there, unless you have them anaesthetised and are prepared to uh, repeatedly flush the canal, um, I think you just work, you know, it's a tip of the iceberg thing. You're just trying to remove the, the worst of it at the most distal part of the ear canal, the closest to the opening and in the folds around the pinner. Um, and... Um, and you can't, you couldn't expect to do any more than that without an anaesthetic. Yep. And you did mention that, you know, we always have in the back of our mind the the, the um, mites in the ear and we can, you know, occasionally see what the other classic conditions that we might see in, in any ear, so an otitis, variations, um, bacterial, fungal or whatever, but um, the vast majority of these, like like. You and I mentioned, Mark, um, I think of those ones where we have that excess ear gunge um, that isn't really bothering the the, um, the ferret. Um, and my technique for cleaning that out, if I do have a anaesthetised ferret, is, is exactly what you'd consider. It's using one of those ear cleaners and giving a good slosh down there, Mark. Um, yep. And the one I... Yeah, well, here in Australia, it's the OT clean or OTO clean or whatever, uh, um, or OTO flush um, variations, and giving a little bit of a gentle massage and then um, softening it up, and then it comes away quite readily. Then, um, often with with the help of a gentle um, cotton tip, um, that may that also has a little bit of that ear cleaning solution dribbled on it to to um, aid the process there. Um, and it's amazing how much, you know, how many, you 
uh, you know, half a dozen scoops um, to to remove it all, Mark. Um, but it is it's one of those satisfying things, isn't it? <laughs> to clean out the ferret is. Um, <laughs> I find that satisfying, and you end up with a with a um, good clean ear. And um, I mentioned the fact that we cleaned out the ears to the client, uh, and they are interesting too when you do that. That. Um, you often find in other species, maybe um, dogs or whatever, that once you clean um, some troublesome wax like that, you've got horribly inflamed mucosa in the ear. But um, the ferrets look great, the light pink mucosa. They, it doesn't look like, um, as you said before, it doesn't look like the wax causes them, in the majority of cases, significant problems. Um, it just is very gratifying to get it out and ensure that it doesn't get to the point where it causes a problem if you can. And, uh, yeah, um, it is very satisfying. And recurrence-wise, uh, yes, is the answer to <laughs> yes. that. And it's variable as far as um, time in my experience. You know, it might take several several months um, to, to get to the same level or it might be a little bit quicker than that um, or if we're lucky, a little bit longer. Um, I'd, I'd love to, I think... Um, it's a really good project for somebody to, to study, to do some um, decent um, examination of that um, material inside these pet ferret ears, Mark, and um, work out what the normal um, flora and fauna yeah. are in there yeah, yeah. Um, and do, do some cultures, etc., and um, just get a bit of a feel for what, what's the major ingredients there and, you know, um, it would be help answer the um answer the questions that we sort of posed here but yeah have you um, smeared any of the yeah and, yeah and um especially the ones where i think it may be especially early on when i started seeing them i was thinking these are going to be um they'll be they'll be the mites in there and yeah and i you know i got a bit sick of the fact that they weren't <laughs> it really it really is only i don't know i, I was estimating when we we're thinking about uh, this i estimate that only probably one in 15 or 20 cases actually has ododectes. The the vast majority of them, as you said, are, are, um, are devoid of arthropod intervention. And um, and then I thought, ah, oh, this, this you know dark, crusty black stuff. It's going to possibly have malatesia as a component. But I can't say that. There's been only probably a couple of ferrets where we've identified that yeast in the, the material. The vast majority, we don't see anything. So it would be interesting if someone did a more extensive study than our anecdotal stuff and, and could identify um, some, of, some more of the predisposing factors and whether there is an etiological agent. Yep. Well, unsurprisingly, exactly the same with my experience there, Mark, um, in that it's mostly... Gunge, uh, <laughs> excess gunge, um, yes, uh, with them. So, yeah, f it's a fascinating one, this, isn't it, Mark? And then, you know, tried, tried to do a bit of a search around and see if there's any reports of it in the in the literature or even places like uh, VIN, etc. and I didn't really find anything at all, Mark. So uh, It is a topic that we'd, we'd really value uh, any of our listeners to fire off a quick email or let us give us some idea of what their experiences are because we are really, it's your and my anecdotal evidence and um, we'd be really interested in what other people see in the ears of ferrets. Absolutely. And I think with that, Gunge out, Mark, and we are out of here. We'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. 
Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thank you.